0: Rabbi Avi Killip. I'm here with Rabbi Avital Hochstein and Rabbi Elazar Simon on sacred ground. It's been a very long and hard week, which I feel we have said so many times, but even between when you recorded last week and when we released the episode, there was um, an incident with tremendous number of deaths of Israeli soldiers it's been a week even since then the response from the Hague. So I'm eager to hear what this week was for you and for the people of Israel. My main
1: feeling this week and I mean I probably said it in previous weeks as well, but I feel we're stuck, meaning the death tolls are are going up and the hostages are still there and I don't really see how we're going to get out of this. And I feel stuck. The feeling here is that we're all waiting to wake up in the morning and to hear there's been some sort of breakthrough. Um, Because we know that if not, it's just a matter of time until we hear about more names, another disaster. And I think that that's one of the reasons that what we wanted to talk about today is what good is having, receiving a Torah in a time like this, when we feel that the reality sucks so much and it's stuck. And there's something we're going to read on Shabbat about something coming from the heavens that's meant to heal us or save us from ourselves. And the question is how it can do that so that's that's what's been on my mind this week, and I think we'd like to talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, just to to kind of emphasize the question, and maybe give it a personal narrative. Um, I think the question is: Is there room for the spirit? What what is the role of the spiritual? Maybe even we're asking ourselves personally: What's the role of spiritual leaders and of the wisdom of Torah? In light of, and now I guess many of us will add in, right? We'll complete that sentence in different ways. In light of, or in the darkness of war. In light of, or in the darkness of such awful events. In light of, in the darkness of so much death. I have been trying to remember how a conversation I had with my son this morning on the way to school began. And I can't remember how it began, but probably it was because the question was in my mind. And and I'll share this story. Elazar wrote to me early this week, or maybe even the end of last week, what should our topic be? Do you have any thoughts? And I said I was wondering about one of the Ten Commandments, how to think about it in light of war. And that is the commandment of lo tirtzach, don't murder. And Elazar's response was, maybe, maybe let's go broader and ask about the meaning of receiving a Torah in which one of the commandments is do not murder. What is the meaning in a situation of war? What use can it be? We were driving to school and I raised the question with my son. And as I said, he's 17, almost 18. I don't remember exactly how we began the conversation, but it basically was, what is the difference between killing in the context of war? Some points in war, you think that's a legitimate taking of life versus a non-legitimate taking of life, which is about do not murder is about. And, We actually struggled getting to criteria that in a very clear and simple way was able to differentiate. We raised the question of hakam lehorgecha hashkem lehorgo. When somebody comes up to kill you, you have the right to protect yourselves, even in the act of taking the other person's life. Maybe that's a criteria. There was something, I think, for me, and I think he identified with it unsatisfying about the very clear statement of don't kill and when there's a legitimacy to go and contradict it. It came up in other statements of the Ten Commandments as well. Shabbat has been different for many people in wartime. Mm -hmm. That's another commandment we are asking ourselves how to keep in the context of war. There's a lot of damage being done on both sides. Is that a form of stealing? Is there legitimacy to break down a house which danger might come from? What does that mean? What does that look like when? So I guess these clear 10 commandments of clear values and interaction, both with God and among people, just raise a lot of questions at the moment of how to act. Yeah, they're the big ones.
0: And I think it's, it's unsettling even just to be asking these questions. When we read through this Parsha, we are not used to getting tripped up. You know, we're used to saying, well, honor your father and mother. What does that really look like? And how do you do that? We're not used to getting tripped up on don't kill and saying, well, this is a tricky one. You know, we're used to being able to say, well, this one's clear. Don't steal. Okay, this one's more clear. Um, You know, obviously, the conversation you're having with your son is not the first version of that conversation in Jewish history or in (laughs) rabbinic history. Um, but also we are usually having it in a more theoretical, you know, not having it with your son who's, will become a soldier in the next few years where it it doesn't feel theoretical at all. It feels incredibly real. And I think, you know, I feel, Avital, like this is a symptom of my being a student of yours, um, that I... Also, when you shared this topic, discussed it with my son this morning. Um, my son is only 11, and he's in America and not about to be a soldier. And he had such an interesting response, which was like, oh, well, that mitzvah is about murder, not about what's happening now. What's happening now is war, not murder. Um, that for him, it was, it was sort of an, a misapplication of this mitzvah. But it was interesting and sort of took me aback that for an 11-year-old, it could be so obvious, you know, to say, oh, you know, how do you reconcile this commandment with this moment? Well, they don't need to be reconciled. I'm just leaving that to the side and saying that's a different category, which sounds actually like a different direction than your conversation with your son, who admittedly is older and has studied more. It's a
2: different path. Yeah, though I think intuitively, on the way to school there this morning, there was the same intuition that these are different categories. And it was only step two of thinking, the confusion came up, or maybe I'll say it because we're talking not only about law and the mind, but also about the spirit and the emotional. And I guess there is something about the notion of taking a life and being next to life being taken that in my mind crosses definitions. The next layer I wanna add to that is that the more clarity we have about the legitimacy, it seems the less there is post-trauma. What do you mean? I'll go back to your son. When it's clear that I'm doing it in war and I'm saving lives and the price is life, But I'm in the context of war, where both in the Torah light and in uh, human life and in um, international law, war has different rules. When there's clarity there, it seems people suffer less of post-trauma. When there's clarity on the battlefield about what I'm supposed to do. And why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I think one of our roles is to bring us back to square one of the values. One role is to be holding and reminding of that clarity. What are our fundamental and basic values that are guiding us in this time? And that when we look back at the mirror, at ourselves, when we look back at what we did, we will understand why we did it. We will have the value languages language of why we did this, what was guiding us. Yeah. You shared, actually, a few weeks ago,
0: we discussed, uh, we talked about your children, and I had asked you if you had any advice for people sending children in, into the Army as soldiers. And in that conversation, you said something like, the best thing we can arm them with, that we can give them, is a strong and rooted sense of their values and i feel that here right it's 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 whether we experience this week's parsha and the 10 commandments as a burden or or a gift to have that grounding that allows us to you know as you're saying sort of not end up completely traumatized on the other side of it because we have we know we've given the thought to what we're doing
1: i hear you saying that well when we read the, we're going to read the Parshan Shabbat, we're going to read Lotir Tzach. It's very clear. It's not complicated. But in the situation that we are now facing and in other situations in life, it's very clear that it's not that simple and that sometimes it's necessary. And what what do we do with that um, complexity? And, and, and you're saying the role of the rabbi is to kind of echo that despite the fact that it's complicated, it's also very, very, it's also very simple. The Rashbam on the verses, Lo he says immediately, Kol retzicha hariga hi bekol makom. murder is only murder for no reason without a justification. But as always in the Midrash, it's more it's more complicated. We have a Midrash about how God, before giving Am Yisrael the Torah, he um, he went to all the different nations and he offered them the Torah. And it says that when he, he went to the sons of Asav, he he, uh, he told them, ah, will you accept uh, this Torah? They asked him, what does it say in it? He said, it says, Lotir tzach, don't murder. And then they said, uh, well, we can't. That's what we do. We murder. And what is how does the Midrash prove that? It quotes the Pasuk from Yitzchak's baracha to Esav after the failed Barachah, uh, the uh, bracha to Yaakov, he gives the bracha to Esav, and he says, al you shall live on your sword. And that's weird, because al living on your sword, it doesn't necessarily sound like it's what we would call unjustified killing. On the contrary, it sounds like a society in that feels, um, and whether that is objectively true or not objectively true, there is a society that says that, oh, we are now in such a situation of a danger that we need... To live on our sword, you hear people in Israeli um, climate saying it. Saying uh, people that you, I know oppose like different peace solutions. They say no, we have to live on our sword right now. And what they're exactly meaning to say is that that the killing is justified in this situation. So, but the midrash brings that to explain why why uh, uh, the sons of Esav can't receive uh, the Torah that says Lo Tzach, I saw there, there, there's a beautiful um, Orachaim on this Midrash, 18th century scholar Rabbi Chaim ben Atar, um from Morocco. Orachaim asks, so what? The sons of Esav are used to kill a lot, but, well, why can't they accept the Torah? Why can't Kadesh Baruch Hu force them to receive the Torah like he forced us, according to the Midrash, and then maybe they'll stop killing? And he says, if you look at the Midrash, what the Midrash means is not that they that it, that it's impossible for them to um, restrain themselves from killing, but that the killing defines them, right? And I think what he means to say by that is that when the Torah says, Lotir tzach, it's true that when we come to real life, like in other things, like on Shabbat, like in other values of the Torah, it's more complicated than that. But, but the Torah is trying to define us, as people that in the core of them, we have we have love of life, we have respect for life, and we cannot um, let the act of killing define us.
0: I'm so glad you brought those texts. There's a lot in them, I think, that can be useful to us. First of all, just to go back to the, the first source, even without the gloss, is to say sort of first of all, just acknowledging that there it feels incompatible to live by the sword and to have Torah. Those feel incompatible. Um, but I'm struck also by the fact that the live by the sword is a bracha. It's a blessing, actually, which is something I feel like I've also heard you guys say in this podcast, that the ability to, to defend yourself and to be able to live by the sword is a privilege. And, and it's a privilege and a bracha that feels incompatible with with Torah. That's hard to hold, but trying to actually hold both of those feels like, you know, that that's one of our spiritual struggles right now. And then the addition to say, well, maybe it's not, maybe it can't come to define us. I'm curious sort of in two directions to ask you a follow-up question in two directions. One is on the individual level, right? For the people who are soldiers who are participating in the activities that are leading to the deaths of other people. What, what does it look like to not let this define you? And then on the broader scale, you know, I sort of opened by saying, you know, Israel was on trial at The Hague, and how are we responding to that? Um, and your response is, well, what does it look like for us to take this mitzvah seriously? You know, just wondering, what, is it, what does it look like when on a national level, Israel is sort of being defined by, by the sword? And I don't know if you have thoughts on either the national level or the really individual level.
1: I think that everything that happened in The Hague, for a lot of people, it wasn't even about the specific political situation, about the specific claims. There was a lot of anger about that too, and, and feeling that we're being treated unfairly, but... I spoke to a lot of people, especially older people, who are just so heartbroken at the thought that someone is accusing the Jewish state of this and that someone could even bring it to mind and discuss it seriously. It's led different people to different feelings, whether that's just anger and um, blaming everyone and whether that is also trying to look look inside and see in which way we enable that to happen. But I'm I'm feeling it a lot.
2: What you hear is that we're dealing with identity. It's heartbreaking and mind-boggling to think that we're perceived as doing genocide. And I think in the same light, it's unacceptable to think of ourselves identity-wise as a people who are who forever will need to use our sword. And I think that's part of the distinction we hear Elazar and the Midrash making of our identity is of a people of Torah. There are situations where we have to pick up our sword in order to live. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also important for me to say Looking back, in other words, identity wise, when I am attacked, I want to be able to protect myself. I don't want to be back in the situation of the Holocaust. I want to be the owner of power. And identity wise, I don't want to use that power to take life. That is a Bedi'avad reality, a reality I don't choose a reality I'm forced into. When I say I, I mean Israel, the, the people around us. Mm-hmm. It is not a It's not the ideal. It's not a, a positive choice anyone here makes, and it's not where we want our power to go. We want power for life, to expand life, to be more lively. That's the purpose of power. Sometimes we are pulled into situations where we have to start from the bottom just to, to protect basic life. Alas, that
0: is where we are. Your comment about identity is really striking to me, actually, and what it looks like for us to be people of Torah who then have to figure out how to use a sword and not people of the sword who then have to figure out if we can accept the Torah. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that year after year we have Parshad Itro. And in this moment, we also have a war. Um, and, and to remember that sort of that's how it should be, that we should think of ourselves as situated within Torah, and then figuring out how to navigate this moment. Of war from that direction and not the other way around.
1: I always think in this context about um, about the midrash about David Melich that he was a um, dinov etzni and the Beit Midrash he was gentle and he was and he wrote the psalm shifti bevet Hashem kol lachzot Hashem I want praying to sit in the house of Hashem his whole life. And at the same time, the stories of the Tanakh tell us that he um, he went to war all the time. And he was, when he went to war, he was the opposite of this gentle. He was a very, like, fighter. and, And I think it's something I've been wanting to comment about everything we're saying. Trying to do the separation between what we have to do and between who we are. It's the hardest thing in the world. It is a very, very thin line. And it's a lot to ask from, especially from the 19 and 20 year old Mm -hmm. boys Mm -hmm. that are doing this Mm -hmm. there is when you are now on a mission in the army you have to be in it and you have to um devote yourself to it in some way you can't constantly be thinking about the values in your head and there are a lot of there are a lot of people that in Israel that would get quite upset by what we're saying because we're saying we need to believe in the rightfulness of this war, and we can't constantly question ourselves and and there is a sense in which they are right, meaning for sure you can't actually function when you're kind of in this crazy place, so it's something very, very thin, and that is our responsibility as educators to be able to manage to bring that place with without kind of Loosening the hands of the of the people that have to that have to do the work. Um, I just want to put it out there that it's yeah. um, it's so hard, and we need we need people that are deeply rooted in Torah and highly sensitive and highly understanding of reality.
2: I'll say two things. I think it's really interesting that just before we received the Torah, we build a legal system in our parasha. And that's also relevant to what's been happening in Israel this year. And it's interesting that the legal system is built before the fundamentals are given. So there's something intuitive that, that, that the people of Israel have already about what's right and wrong and how to manage things and so on. Part of the goal is to free Moshe so he can deal with the things that are maybe outside of the law or beyond the law, whatever that means. So there's a legal system, there's an awareness that there are things outside of the legal system, and then there's the fundamentals. Part of this beautiful distinction you're making between who we are and what we do and how difficult that distinction is, is also that our role is to give both hope and perspective. In other words, to say, these things happen, wars happen. They're part of life, and they're part of a Torah life, and they're part of being human. And simultaneously, it can be different. Even when you're in a situation of war, hold on to the perspective that it could be different. And you're right, Elazar, that that's impossible for the 19-year-olds to hold on the battlefield. And we have a responsibility towards them to hold it, to remind them for that to be part of the narrative.
0: We sometimes talk about prayer. I don't know if you have a closing for us, either of you, that would point us in that direction.
1: I'd like to share with you um, a poem by an Israeli poet called Chaim Guri. I looked um, looked for an English translation, but I couldn't find one. But I'm going to try and do a free translation. It's called Books. And he says, There was a man that had an amazing library in his house. In it, thousands of books. From the Rishonim to the Achronim, until he realized that none of these books have ever lessened the evil in any of the times. Well, if that is the case, what do I need this? And he sent fire that smoked through the bookshelves. And I was sorry for the books that didn't manage to prevent even one strike or one shot or one tier, but just to pass from generation to generation? It's a very pessimistic poem. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very deep question. It has a lot to do with what we were asking ourselves here today, but um, but my prayer is that that won't be the case. And it's it's interesting, because in the poem, he's sorry for the books, and Sometimes we pray for ourselves, but sometimes we can pray for the Torah. The Torah is a something that went into this world, came to this world, it was meant to make a change. And my prayer is a prayer for the Torah, that in the end of times we will find out that the Torah did make a change and did prevent evil and suffering and violence, um, and did manage to heal heal the world.
0: Amen. Amen. Will you just read the poem to us in Hebrew, and we'll leave you all with that?
1: This is uh, Chaim Guri from the book Afsheratziti Od Ktzat. Hayo ayish shaita beveito sifrian hederet uva ribos sferim min arishanim adachronim ad shenochach ladaat shkol asferim aleh lo ifchitu meharoa bizman min hazmanim imka ach asharu belibos ma tsorach li beeleh veshilach esh sharshana ha meube tamar bchalonim. <laughs> Thank you. The music is Jericho at Dusk by Alone Parrots.
0: Thank you to Sam Greenberg, Jeremy Tabak, and Effie Unterman for producing this podcast, and to David Chobinski for recording and editing this episode.